Here, I'm all now to defending your right to speak and to listen. This is the Free Speech Union Podcast. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Free Speech Union podcast. My name is Jonathan Ayling. I'm part of the team here and it's fantastic to have you guys joining us. Today we are joined by uh, Councillor Michael Laws from the Otago Regional Council, a former mayor and MP. Uh, Michael Laws was re-elected by the Dunstan Ward in 2019 and subsequently elected as Deputy Chairman of the Otago Regional Council. Councillor Laws has had an extensive media career, uh, hosting his own radio and TV shows and is a prize-winning writer and journalist. It's fantastic to have you today uh, with us, Michael. Thank you. Um, And listen, all power to you, to be honest with you. I've often thought um, the thing that this country lacks is a a committed group of of people who support free speech. And I'm delighted to see um, who your directors are because they encompass such a broad range of political opinion, but all with the same view that we're entitled to one. That's exactly right. Absolutely. A free speech is either for all or it's not at all. But now you, you've recently found yourself in a, in a bit of hot water, as it were. Um, for our listeners, you, you've been accused by the chief executive of the Otago Regional Council of violating the council's code of conduct. Um, and, and I believe their allegation is that you have endangered the staff of the regional council, both uh, psychologically and physically. This is this is some pretty serious stuff. What's the story there? Um, well, I mean, um, first let's do codes of conduct because they are being increasingly weaponized, mostly by staff and by um, mayors and chairs to silence dissent. And I've done a lot of research on this issue for defending myself on this particular. Uh, matter and in actual fact it's local government New Zealand who are a very conservative little organisation really um, who pointed out in an article um, earlier this year in their own magazine that goes out to everybody which no one reads of course um, until you (laughs) strike something like this uh, (laughs) that um, codes of conduct were being weaponised were being used to shut down people who had different views to the prevailing orthodoxy around a council table are they being weaponized by fellow councillors or by uh, the the uh, nameless, faceless bureaucracy? A bit of both. Um, they, they, but interestingly, they're being predominantly used by chief executives to quell um, to quell questions, to quell um, introspection, to quell the kind of comment or speech that might in any way harm the reputation. Uh, they say of the council, what they really mean is of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a unanimity of those complaints. Um, when I've looked at them over certainly the last 12 to 18 months in New Zealand, um, they aren't about defamation because you can take, as you know, um, actions for defamation. And they're not about um, savaging individual staff members so that you might sort of end up with a personal grievance. These are designed to shut down dissent. These are designed to shut down examinations of mostly the chief executives, but usually senior management's decisions. And they're also designed to enforce something that I think is just arbitrary crap. And that is the line between governance um, and management. 
And chief executive, nameless bureaucrats, faceless bureaucrats all over New Zealand love finding that line and saying, well, you can't cross it. My view is if you're elected to represent your community and your community is paying 100% of the income of the bureaucracy, then everything is automatically an issue of governance, particularly when things go wrong. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Something went wrong twice, uh, staff botched it completely, uh, and then staff sought to mislead and um, to hide uh, the true facts of the situation. And once I became interested in investigating the issue, suddenly, lo and behold, we get this complaint from the chief executive suggesting that I had quote, created a potential risk for harm both psychologically and physically for Otago Regional Council staff. And this was a question around their conduct, wasn't it? The the council had given some advice to a, a, a company who was uh, supposedly allowed to dump into the Clutha River and then they withdrew that advice and, and it was really a question of someone not wanting the buck to stop with them. Is that correct? Well, yeah, pretty much. What happened was that um, I think it was March of this year, a demolition company in Belclutha was taking down a building. They had a lot of hard fill and obviously had used that hard fill before but got in contact with the ORC's engineering staff and said, listen, you want to preserve that channel in the Clutha River, um, perhaps from erosion or something like that, I suspect. Um, why don't we put that in the river to act as a sort of hard barrier? And it would appear that uh, they were given the, a green light to do so. And so a whole lot of this demolition rubble ended up in the Clutha River. It was spotted by a person walking, a woman walking her dogs uh, at the riverbank who complained to the media. Uh, and then Fish and Game, the, the sort of local greenies, got involved and said how dreadful. Uh, and then the Otago Regional Council said, yes, it does appear to be dreadful, or at least one arm did, and found out that the other arm had given permission. And um, uh, I said, how embarrassing, and lo and behold, code of conduct. And seriously, it's that simple. And I know that your listeners will be going, it can't be that. It must have said something more. You know, you must have attacked these people by name. No, 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 no. All I said was how incredibly embarrassing um, that this had occurred. Lo and behold, code of conduct. So the, the left hand of the council didn't know what the right hand of the council had already said, and then uh, you, you're, you're brought up for noticing that. How does this impact on your ability as a councillor to, uh, you, you touched on this briefly earlier, but to represent ratepayers? This is, this is a question of accountability. Um, you, you, you didn't name the, the council staff at all. You didn't, um, you didn't reference them in particular. Is this undermining the democratic process? Oh, of course it is. I mean, and, and it's happening throughout New Zealand, not just in Otago, but in this particular case, of course it is. You're, one of your prime, if not the prime responsibility of an elected member um, representing ratepayers, I've got, well, regionally 220,000 people live in our region. My ward, I think, has got about 55,000 people in the Dunstan ward, so that's Wanaka, Queenstown, Clutha, Alexandra, Cromwell, uh, sorry, not Clutha, um, sort of the Roxborough and, and the Maniototo. But they pay significant and sizable rates. Mm. And, and that money, which we've just imposed the highest rates increase 
75% uh, for some of my constituents, 75%. Um, and so unsurprisingly, every ratepayer is going, well, if you are going to take that money, you've got to be accountable for every dollar. Of course. You've got to tell us that those decisions are being made properly and that the money is being spent wisely. But in this particular case, when I started probing, and remember, I'm the deputy chair, um, but even if I was an ordinary council, it wouldn't make any difference. But I was probing as to how on earth this could have happened. Um, we were stonewalled by senior management. We were fed no information rather than misinformation. And then finally, when the we were given a, a bit story and the media were misled uh, by the Otago Daily Times. So unsurprisingly, at that stage, you go, they're trying to cover something up. And yeah. they sure were. They were trying to cover up serious and significant wrongdoing. Do you think this case is uh, setting a new precedent for the use of these codes of conduct to uh, um, divert away from accountability? Or is this not a new precedent? Is it unfortunately something that is far too common nowadays? No, I think I think I don't believe that the complaint was motivated out of thin air. Um, they never are. They never come out of a clear blue sky. Um, local government just doesn't think that way. It thinks like some sort of amorphous continuum. Uh, and as a consequence, I've noticed other codes of conduct and other councils over the last 12 to 18 months that have been set forth by chief executives, largely not simply to protect the reputation of their council, but to protect themselves from the kind of scrutiny that 5, 10, 15 years ago would have just been considered normal. Mm. I mean, we are in the political game. And accountability is, you know, and transparency, I mean, that's even required by the law. If you look at the Local Government Act of 2002, everything that local government's meant to be done is open and transparent. Well, that's just a joke. In this case, it's a sick joke, but it's a joke nonetheless. And it is being increasingly, you are finding, as I said at the start of the show, executives and particular chief executives throughout New Zealand and local government trying to draw this arbitrary line, a barrier, a wall, and saying, you may not come over here. This is my bailiwick. Forgetting not only are they an employee of the governance team, but that our part of our job under the Local Government Act is to hold them accountable for actions that they take and money that they spend. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, accountability is one thing, though I imagine some of our listeners might say, yes, you have signed up for a life of politics, but uh, those that are involved in the council have not necessarily um, submitted themselves to that same level. And so when we talk about the uh, psychological harm which can be caused, do you think that there is a need for a, a code of some kind to um, to ensure that those that are involved in the bureaucracy are treated fairly by those that are uh, that are politicians? No, no, I don't. Um, if there is the kind of harm that you're suggesting, then you know the employment law is full of personal grievance cases that have been successful for just the issues that you've raised. Um, the high courts and district courts routinely uh, give defamation law to those people who tell lies about you and give judgments and monetary compensation. Um, and there are things called the audit office and the ombudsman and a whole series of the Human Rights Commission and a whole series of existing agencies that protect individuals from unfair criticism um, or unjust uh, rebuttal. 
So um, codes of conduct, as I said, were always really intended. And remember, I've been a mayor. Uh, I was a mayor 2004, 2010. But they were sort of nascent then. Uh, they came in with the, with the Local Government Act of 2002. And really, they were designed to regulate behaviour between councillors. So it was designed so that I didn't say, you know, stop sleeping with your so-and-so or your son steals money or something like that and get away with it. It was designed to get usually disparate personalities of sitting around a council table to sit down if they had a grievance and sort it out. And if they couldn't, then there was this mechanism. So that's what mm. they were intended for originally. They've become mm. increasingly weaponized for political purposes and increasingly lately, as I said, in the last 12, 18, 24 months by chief executives to protect uh, themselves and their organization from scrutiny from elected councillors. Mm. And and there would, you know, chief executives around the country would be uh, familiar with the tensions that can emerge in workplaces and navigating them uh, sympathetically. But, but there is the question of a democratic process here and the representation of, as you've said, ratepayers and, and QB citizens. Do you think that there's a tension between standard employment law and public law and, and the way that actually this is a bigger context? This is about our fundamental government structure and not just the uh, give and take of accountability that may happen in any commercial context? Listen, I have no doubt that codes of conduct are illegal uh, in local government in New Zealand. I argued such in my defence on this particular case. And my argument was that codes of conduct, I think, are directly contrary to the express provisions of the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, uh, which protect and preserve um, the ability, particularly of elected members, to have freedom of thought and speech and opinion, um, particularly when they're not individually attacking anybody but are attacking the decisions or the wrongdoing, in this particular case, of council officers um, and exposing the organisation to legal and reputational risk, as it happened in this particular case. Um, so um, I, I think that if there was a High Court challenge against uh, code of conduct, and I would have been quite happy to take one on this issue, I'd win. I'm very sure under the Bill of Rights Act uh, and in front of a high court, I could argue my case and win it quite easily. But this is one of those um, denials of freedom uh, that has been, been done surreptitiously and by stealth in local government. Yeah. People don't have the ability to hear off to the high court. They don't have the 20000 or $25,000 to spend, maybe more, and they don't have the time commitment. I mean, one of the bad things out of this case, for example, is that the chief executive is bringing it. Well, she's bringing it against the deputy mayor. How do you think that relationship's going to work for the next 12 months? Mm. Um, or, you know, if I get re-elected for the months after that. So what you're doing is you're in actual fact setting up arm camps and near the twain shall meet. It's a stupid way of solving disputes and only stupid people get involved in it. Um, when I was mayor, I did my level best and succeeded persuading everybody who was thinking about taking a code, a code of conduct and got hot under the collar, and that included both senior staff and councillors from taking them. And what I did was I put them in the table together and I said, right, here I am. I'm a sort of quasi-mediator conciliator today. What's your problem? By the end of it, we'd resolve what the problems was. Usually required a bit of give and take on both sides and they'd work together tomorrow. No, no, no. Codes of conduct, you end up in warring camps and you don't get any less warring this particular case now, what's the date today? It's the um, 16th of November. Oh, that's opposite, isn't it? 
it was on the 16th of August that the complaint was laid. So how do you think that's worked for the last three months? And it still hasn't turned up in front of the council. Do you think these codes of conduct can promote an increasingly litigious uh, environment uh, at the council, opposed to sitting down and going, okay, we're we're sensible people, we're going to talk this out, we've got some differences, but we can make our way through. While the intention of these codes of conduct may have been positive, is it is it actually fostering a culture that that shuts down these conversations? Yes, it does. And and chief executives throughout local government in New Zealand know it, and that's what they're using it for. You know, it's, as I said, I must be the only person in New Zealand who's actually gone and researched these things because, you know, I had to. And I was arguing the whole Bill of Rights Act. But what I was amazing, amazed by was the number of times that chief executives were launching these actions um, and failing to understand another thing. You are in politics. I don't give a rat's razoo if you are um, uh, saying that, uh, you know, I can't defend myself or something like that. Of course you can defend yourself. You can defend yourself if you've done right any day of the week. But if you've done wrong, it's not an excuse to say I can't be held to scrutiny, which is exactly what's been held in this case. This, these staff members did wrong. Their wrong was then covered up by other staff members. They deliberately didn't inform their governance wing, and then they deliberately, here on the basis I have in front of me, misled the media as to the consequences of the so-called independent investigation that occurred into this action. It exposed our council to serious reputational, but more importantly, also legal risk for breaching the Resource Management Act, which did occur. You know, the law was broken by us. How embarrassing. Can't say that. Why can't you say that? Because you might cause physical or psychological harm to our stuff. Have you ever heard anything so stupid in your life? You mentioned that you are of the strong opinion that these codes of conduct are, in fact, illegal, according to the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act and, and probably other um, public pieces of public legislation. Uh, do you know if there are other councillors around the country who share this opinion with you? And, and, and what kind of proportion of uh, the elected representatives at the local level would feel that their role as a democratic representative has been stifled by these codes of conduct? I've been amazed by the number of, of amount of feedback I've had in the last three months from elected members um, throughout New Zealand. Um, some of whom have um, themselves undergone code of conduct investigations and inquiries, um, and others who have feared that they would be and are concerned increasingly that um, chief executives, in particular local government, are using it as a way of stopping elected members from inquiring properly into the affairs of the organisation. So I do think that there is a pervasive, uh, not fear, then certainly anxiety abroad. Um, and that, that has a chilling effect upon uh, both, you know, democracy, obviously, at a local level, but also at accountability. I say this again. It's our basic job, absolutely basic job, to ensure that management and staff are doing their job properly and holding them to account when they do not in exactly the same way that the electors will hold me to account next year if they considered I've done a poor job. Mm. Now, the difference is the electors can get rid of me. It's bloody hard to get rid of local government staff. It's like the New Zealand Post Office, pre-corporatisation. Um, um, so um, 
there are there, and, and and I've noticed there's a sort of round table or round robin of chief executives in local government. Seems if you get fired from one organisation, you pop up in another one, or you something went wrong and in one organisation, as I say, you end up somewhere else. It's it's almost a closed shop. I, it's it's almost monastic. I'd have to say. There's almost no private sector people who come from outside local government who end up as chief executives. Mm. Um, And that's the other thing that's worth looking at too. And therefore, you don't get that cross-pollination of ideas. You don't get that creativity. You don't get that, my God, these are the board of directors, and when they tell me to jump, all I ask is how high. You don't get that kind of thought. Instead, you're getting this resistance to any form of scrutiny of what you're doing. And I think it's a pretty sick culture. Thought that a long time about local government, which is why when I was mayor, the first thing that I did was bring in someone from the private sector, and boy, what a difference they made to my organisation. As a slight tangent, but but definitely related as well, there's also recently been questions around the use of um, updated job descriptions, and uh, you've made it very clear that if these if these job descriptions are, are implemented, uh, you may uh, resign from your position on the council. Do you think that this is, again, another perhaps well-intentioned, but perhaps not, uh, tool that could be weaponized and actually used against democratically elected representatives in their function uh, at, the, at the political table there? Well, you're asking me what I think, so I'll tell you what I think. I think that that document that was written by ORC staff was designed to cure a problem. Are you that problem, Michael? <laughs> I, I'm just going to say, I think the problem that they perceived was Councillor Michael Laws from the Dunstan Ward of the Otago Regional Council. Um, but but let, let's, not, let's not miss that point. What, what, you're, what you're alleging there is exceedingly sinister, that it's, it's, it's fundamentally undemocratic. Yeah. The irony is simply lost on them, is it? No, I, exactly. You know, I mean, to be fair, the idea didn't come from them. The idea came from a councillor who, um, but the, it was written uh, over my objections, I might add, um, by a staff. And that's the other thing that can I tell you about local government and particularly the Otago Regional Council. The responsibility for agendas is not the members. Now, you'd think, isn't that? or the responsibility for agendas lies with the chief executive and the senior management staff. Now you just think about how stupid that is. So let me get this right. The only way that an elected member can put something on an agenda to be discussed by their colleagues and their fellows and perhaps deal with a serious issue, um, obviously a serious issue that might arise, is if they do a notice of motion, which is it means it goes to the last order of business on a council paper. But the chief executive and the senior management staff run the agenda. That happens throughout New Zealand under the standing orders put out by another group of faceless bureaucrats, local government New Zealand. Now, I wonder people want to leave it in droves. So, again, it's the sort of the insidious, and that's the only word to describe it, creep of local government bureaucrats to assume more and more power and take away more and more control from the very people elected to actually exercise those powers. Well, this uh, certainly doesn't sound like the story's over, um, both for you and and for the question of codes of conduct in general, but we're going to have to leave it there uh, for today, Michael. Thank you very much for your time. For those that are listening to this, uh, the Free Speech Union is very concerned by the the implications of codes of conduct at our local government level, and we have contacted every local 
council in the country requesting their code of conduct, and we will be assessing them and 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 responding to the most egregious. Uh, um, abuses of these codes, we are concerned by the implications and and think that they are potentially unlawful at numerous levels. And so we'll be continuing to look into this carefully. But we may have to uh, also keep our eyes on on job descriptions, uh, what you're saying there, Michael. Hey, look, thanks very much for your time. And thanks for our listeners for joining us again. Thank you. Um, And I can tell you one piece of news that you won't have at the moment, and that is that this has been settled and is coming to the Open Council in Otago tomorrow week. So on Wednesday, the 24th um, of November, we will know how this all played out. Oh, that's a, that's a good soundbite for us to hold off to the next episode. That's fantastic. Thanks for your time, Michael. Okay, see you later. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakiti anō.